Well, my name is Steve Lindemeyer. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of continuing our study in the book of Luke. And as we continue our study in the book of Luke this morning, it lines up perfectly with the first Sunday of Advent. We don't always plan these things. It just happens the way that God works. But as we're looking and studying through the entire book of Luke, we happen to be at the first two chapters of Luke right during the Christmas season that will lead us up through this Advent season into the celebration of the birth of Christ on Christmas Day. Well, by the way, thank you so much for all those who stayed last week and helped decorate. Isn't this place lovely? Got the Christmas tree up, the candles. You can clap for that. That's good. We can clap for that. It was awesome to be here and see so many people just trying to volunteer and help out and hang the green and put the decorations on the tree, and it's just a fun time of year. It's a fun season where we get to prepare ourselves for the birth of Christ and its celebration. And so what we do here at Citadel Square, if you're new to this idea of the Advent season, you'll see it in your bulletin, but the Advent comes from the Latin word, it means adventus, which means coming or, uh, what was the other word? Arrival. Uh, It means coming or arrival. And so during this season, we don't want to just wait until December 25th and celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, but we take the opportunity all month for four weeks leading up to the birth of Christ to celebrate the Advent season, the coming of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Christ who came, and we celebrate the arrival of Christ who will come again. And that's why we do this in the Advent season. And so turn with me to Luke 1, verses 39 through 45. As I mentioned, this passage is going to be an incredible way to begin the first week of the Advent season, because in this passage, we are going to see in vivid color the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Word that became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We're going to see this amazing interaction and this dialogue between two women, Mary and Elizabeth, who both have a miraculous pregnancy, and we're going to see that within them exists both the forerunner of Christ, the one who would prepare the way for Jesus, who is John the Baptist, and Christ himself. That here in this passage, we will see the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. We will see it begin to come true right here in this dialogue between Mary and Elizabeth. And as we study through and look at these seven verses together, what we're going to see is that God takes the ordinary— And he does the extraordinary. That God takes the ordinary lives of Mary and Elizabeth and he does the extraordinary of bringing in and ushering in the incarnate Christ. And he does the extraordinary through their faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. That God wants to take your ordinary life and he wants to do the extraordinary through faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. So would you turn with me to Luke 1, starting in verse 39 and reading through 45. If you're following along in your Luke study guide, great. There's a Bible in front of you on the pew rack. Pick that up. If you're on your handheld device, that's perfect. But follow along with me in Luke 1, 39 through 45. This is the Word of God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, this is your word, and we come to it with great excitement and anticipation of what you want to teach us this morning through this passage, through this narrative, through this interaction of Mary and Elizabeth. Father, I pray now that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us, that you would show us something more and greater and deeper about you that maybe we didn't know. That you, God, would help us to make application to our lives, to transform us to be more like Jesus Christ. And God, would you have your way in these next few minutes as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we drill down into the content of this, of this passage in these seven verses, I want to zoom back out and, and remind ourselves of the context. We've been looking at Luke 1, and we've been talking through it over the past several weeks, and it's good to remind ourselves where we are before just diving into these seven verses. And if you've been with us, then you're familiar with who Elizabeth is, and you're familiar with who Mary is, and you're familiar with some of the things that have been said of them leading up to these verses that we'll look at this morning. But maybe you're new with us this morning. You came with family or friends here on vacation weekend, and so welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Let's zoom out just a minute and look at the context. Who is Elizabeth that is being spoken of in this passage? Well, we know from the context that Mary, uh, sorry, Elizabeth was married to Zechariah. We know that Zechariah was a priest. We also know that Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron, the high priest. We know from the context that it says that Elizabeth was a righteous woman who walked blamelessly before the Lord. Wouldn't that be awesome for that to be said of you and of me? We know that Elizabeth was advanced in years and that she was barren, that Elizabeth and Zechariah up to this point in their old age had not been able to have children, that they, were, they experienced infertility and, they, and she was barren. We also know from the context that her husband Zechariah, the priest, had received this, this revelation from an angel as he was doing his priestly duties. An angel appeared to Zechariah and said, Zechariah, Elizabeth will conceive. However, Zechariah doubted, didn't he? He wasn't sure that what the angel said was in fact true. And so Zechariah was made unable to speak until the birth of their child. Meanwhile, from the context of the story, we know that Elizabeth did in fact become pregnant. And when we dive into the chapter right here, the verses right here, we're going to see that Elizabeth is about in her sixth month of pregnancy. That's what we know about Elizabeth from the context. What about Mary? You know some, some things about Mary, right? This is the Christmas season. It's the Christmas story. We know a little bit about Mary. We know that she was betrothed or engaged to Joseph. We know that Joseph was in the lineage of David. That's going to be important in your Bible as we continue to read. We know that Mary was a virgin, that she had never known a man intimately. We don't know exactly Mary's age, but most believe that Mary was a young teenager, somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. This, this young teenage girl has an angel of the Lord appear to her and says, Mary, you are going to be with child, and this child in your womb is going to be the Savior of the world. Can you imagine? Put yourself in Mary's Situation. Can you imagine as a young teenage girl hearing that revelation from an angel? 
what would you do? Who would you tell? How would you feel? We know that the angel also told Mary that not only would she conceive miraculously, but that her, her relative Elizabeth had already miraculously conceived. That her, her relative Elizabeth, that all of the family knew that Elizabeth and Zechariah couldn't have children, that they were now, it says that uh, Zechariah was old and she was advanced in years. And so I used that in our house the other day. I said, baby, I'm just old. You're, you're just advanced in years. And so I don't know the distinguishment there, but uh, we'll take it for what it is in the scripture. And, and, and uh, Zechariah was old. Elizabeth was advanced in years. They were unable to have children. Yet the angel says to Mary, Mary, not only will you conceive, but your relative has already conceived miraculously. And we see at the end of where we landed last week that Mary now declares her service to the Lord, that she declares her faithfulness to the Lord. And if you look back in verse 38, you can see that the posture of Mary's heart was that of a servant willing to follow the Lord's will in joyful obedience. And that's what we have in the context, Elizabeth and Mary. And we're going to dive in now to see this amazing dialogue that happens between these two women. And that's where the story continues. Look with me at verse 39 and 40. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. It says, in those days, in what days? It simply means in the days immediately following the revelation of the angel that Mary was going to have a child. Mary gets this revelation. She knows that she herself is going to conceive, and she hears that her cousin Elizabeth has also conceived. And so what does she do? What would you do? When you get this news, wouldn't you want to share it with somebody? Who would you share it to? Who, who could understand? And it says that Mary went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, that she went immediately. There was a sense of urgency. There was a, a longing for her to share in fellowship with Elizabeth to, to find out if what the angel had said was in fact true. And so she goes to the hill country of Judah. Now, we don't know exactly what town Elizabeth and Zechariah lived in. It's, some would think it's Hebron or Hebron. And, and uh, we don't know exactly, but we do know it was in the hill country of Judah. And, and from where Mary was, this is going to be a 70 to 90 mile journey. So you're doing the calculation in your mind, 70 to 90 miles. That's about an hour and a half. That's not too bad. No, we forget. Mary was on foot here. She didn't jump in her, you know, uh, SUV and drive up to see Elizabeth, that she had a long walk ahead of her to visit her relative. 70 to 90 miles would have been a journey of about three to four days, right? Some of you complained because yesterday it took you three to four hours to get home from the upstate, and Mary had to walk three to four days just to get to see her relative, Elizabeth. And she went to see her cousin Elizabeth. Why did she go? This story makes you wonder, why did she go in haste? Why did she go to see her cousin Elizabeth what was the big deal? Well, we can make some observations from the text, and, and I'm certain that part of why she went was to verify that what the angel had said to her was in fact true. We know that Mary believed. We know that she had faith, and she's going to visit to Elizabeth to hear this profound confirmation of the revelation of the angel. I'm sure she went to celebrate the awesome news of Elizabeth's pregnancy because she knew that Elizabeth and Zechariah had spent years dealing with infertility. She knew that Elizabeth was barren. 
she could only imagine the excitement and the joy that Elizabeth and Zechariah must be experiencing right now. And so she went to celebrate this news with Elizabeth. And I'm sure she went to be comforted and encouraged as a fellow sister in Christ, a relative that could understand in some small way what Mary was going through. Not many people can identify with the revelation of an angel to confirm your pregnancy, right? There weren't many places that Mary could go and find a like-minded spirit of somebody that could understand how an angel spoke a word to reveal the fact that she was pregnant. And so she goes to Elizabeth to receive comfort and encouragement from a person who was in a similar situation. Not the normal reveal party. This one is supernatural. But most importantly, though, uh, though Mary certainly went to Elizabeth to celebrate, to verify, to be encouraged, that there's one singular reason why Mary went to visit Elizabeth. And for us here in 2022, it's so that we would see the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the advent of the Messiah. And we're going to see that right here in the text, that God indeed has become man and made his dwelling among us in the person of Jesus Christ, who's now come to life in Mary's womb. You see, this is a beautiful picture of the relationship between two women who had a kindred spirit and a kindred faith. And I love to see their interaction and their, the play that they have with one another and their dialogue with one another in this passage because you see something of true and rich fellowship. You see this idea that true fellowship has with it two things that when we're in true fellowship and community with one another, it's going to strengthen our faith and it's going to enhance our worship. It's going to strengthen our faith and it's going to enhance our worship. When you spend time in your community group, when you spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ, when you spend time with that Bible study group, do you walk away with faith that is strengthened and a heart that wants to worship? That's what we're going to see happen between Mary and Elizabeth in this passage. As I was studying through and thinking through the content of this passage, I couldn't help but to think of our own story. Uh, my wife and I dealt with infertility for the first 10 or 11 years of our marriage. It was a difficult time. It was a time of deep soul searching with the Lord that, God, you promised that children are a blessing from the Lord, and we want children so bad, and, and yet we couldn't have children. After 10 years of trying to have children, the doctors basically said it's somewhat unexplained infertility, but you should never expect to, to have children. And so uh, we went through the process of adoption, an incredible journey. I would love to tell you the story at some point. And God blessed us through the process of adoption with our first son. It was such a great process. We entered the process to adopt child number two. And sometime along the way in that process, at the time we were living in Thailand, we were missionaries there on the mission field in Thailand, and, and so we would often come down with food poisoning, and so my wife was displaying all the symptoms of food poisoning, and so we took her to the hospital, and she was able to see the doctor, and in a few minutes the doctor came and, and gave us the results. It wasn't a parasite. <laughs> it was a baby. Uh, we had experienced somewhat of a miraculous uh, pregnancy ourselves. 
And uh, it was fascinating in that moment because the, the doctors and the nurses, they kind of knew our story. They knew our, our struggle through infertility. They walked through the process of us adopting our first son. And, and the Buddhist nurse that was standing just over my right shoulder as we looked at the results of the pregnancy test, the big bold letters that said positive, and we were dumbfounded and we were floored. And we had this exuberant joy that we're going to see here in a minute. But the Buddhist nurse standing just over my right shoulder in the Thai language, she said, Prajau mi jing. And it means God must be real. Fascinating. That God had answered our prayers. And you know what that's like, that what, what rises up within you is the desire to tell somebody, right? Like, this is amazing. God has answered our prayers. And, and so we, we were trying to debate, who, do we call our parents? And do we tell our friends? And what do we do? Do we not tell anybody? And, and so that night, uh, we were getting together with our team for an event. And two of our best friends and team leaders on our team there in Thailand was Brian and Terry. And so we pulled Brian and Terry aside at, later that evening. And, and we said, Brian and Terry, we got, we got some news for you. That, that God has answered our prayer. And and Marie's pregnant. And Terry's eyes got about this big, and this big smile came over her face, and she goes, me too. <laughs> We're like, no way. And so we got to experience just in a small way what we read here in Scripture, that, that Mary was now pregnant with Jesus, and, John, and, and Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist, and they come together, they have this unique fellowship where they increase one another's faith and enhance one another's worship, and, and it says later in the text, not in the, in the verses that we'll see this morning, but later we'll see that Mary ended up staying with Elizabeth for the next three months to share in this experience together. And it just reminded me of Marie and Terry's relationship. And over the next nine months, they got to share in fellowship and in this, in this shared joy of pregnancy together. And they did baby showers together. And they talked about what it was like to have babies and, and uh, do those types of things. And, and it was fascinating to see their relationship with one another. And, uh, and in fact, our, our, our sons were born three days apart uh, in the hospital there in Thailand. But I love the way that this passage sets up a couple things for us. Not only the relationship between these two sweet women of the faith, but also the, the introduction of the incarnate Christ. But one thing I love, and if you'll read this passage, you'll see it with me, that I love how this passage elevates and dignifies and honors women. Maybe you've heard it said, as I have, Sometimes after a wedding ceremony, when I read through the passage of Ephesians 5 about husbands' roles and wives' roles, I've had, it, have had this comment more than once after the wedding ceremony. Somebody will come up to me and they'll say, I can't believe you read that passage. It says submit in there. And I'm like, I didn't say it. I just read it. <laughs> like this is God's desire for us to make a marriage a beautiful love relationship with one another. And so you may have heard it, as I've often heard it, that somehow Christianity or the Bible devalues or belittles or discriminates against women. And that can't be further from the truth, and you're going to see it right here. Not only right here with Mary and Elizabeth taking the place of prominence in our verses this morning and in the prominence of ushering in the incarnate Christ, but we see it throughout Scripture. Who can forget Sarah, the mother of the Jewish nation? We remember Jochebed, the mother of Moses, who surrendered what she treasured most to the will of God. We think about Rahab, the unlikely ancestor of Jesus, who harbored the Israelite spies in her house. We think about Deborah, the influential female judge. We think about Ruth, the mother of Samuel, who offered—sorry, that was Hannah—Ruth, who married Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, as a picture of the Christ 
We think about Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who offered her son in service to the Lord. We think about Esther, the influential Persian queen that served, that, that saved the Jewish people from destruction. We think about Mary and, Mary and Martha and their, their friendship that they experienced with Jesus. We think about Mary Magdalene and the unwavering disciple of Jesus that she was. We think about the Samaritan woman that Jonathan mentioned earlier that showed that Jesus in his interaction with her shows great kindness. And she herself goes and leads her town to saving faith in Christ. And we see here in this passage Mary and Martha who are elevated to a place of great honor, who are distinguished and dignified and valued for us this morning. So after this three to four day journey, Mary now arrives at the home of Elizabeth. It was actually Zechariah's home, as it says in the text, where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. And she bursts through the door to greet Elizabeth. And one thing that's interesting in this passage is she didn't greet Zechariah. And I scratched my head. There's a lot of things you have to infer from Scripture that are not explicitly written there. And, I, and then I remember, oh yeah, Zechariah still couldn't speak. So even if, even if Mary greeted him, he wouldn't be able to return the greeting. So it says here that Mary greeted Elizabeth. We really don't know where Zechariah was. It was just a little bit of an observation there. So here you have the surprise visit by Mary. And it makes us wonder, what's going to happen next in this dialogue between Mary and Martha. Join with me in verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. We know from the context that the baby in Elizabeth's womb is John the Baptist. And this is John the Baptist's first encounter with Jesus Christ. And what does it say he does? He leaps in her womb. And it says the baby leaped in her womb. Now this is not a sanctity of life sermon, but we cannot overlook the fact that in this text right before us it says the baby leaped in her womb. It doesn't say the embryo, it doesn't say the fetus, it doesn't say the conglomeration of cells and tissues leaped. But it says the baby leaped in her womb. That according to your Bible and mine, life begins at conception. And we see here the presence of baby Jesus and baby John. And the response of baby John to baby Jesus is that he leaped. And the same Greek word for the unborn baby John is the exact same word for the baby Jesus in the manger that we're going to see in chapter 2. The very same word, and it helps, it just reminds me of David's eloquent prose in Psalm 119, uh, 139, verses 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That here in this picture, in this encounter with Mary and Elizabeth, we get to celebrate the wondrous works of God as he knit these babies together in their mother's womb. Is that not fascinating? We hear the story, we know the story, we say it every year during Christmas, but can we pause a minute and think about how spectacular this story is as these two babies interact with their mothers?
There's this instantaneous response, this spontaneous response that happens with this baby in the womb that, that John leaped, and we're going to see in a minute that he leaped for joy. That oftentimes when there's an encounter between an individual and Jesus, you're going to see a response that's sometimes emotional, sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's both, but it's often spontaneous. That we're going to see as we continue in Luke that the shepherds, what did they do? They worshiped. The wise men, their response was they offered gifts. The woman at the well was stunned that Jesus even spoke to her. The rich young ruler fell on his knees. The prostitute instinctively washed Jesus' feet with her hair. The leper threw himself at Jesus' feet to give thanks. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does it say about them? Their hearts burned within them. Paul, on the road to Damascus, fell to the ground, and John the Baptist leaped for joy. What is your response when you come into the presence of Jesus Christ? And we're going to see here at the end of verse 41 that the presence of Jesus ushers in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see what it says there? And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's one pattern that you're going to see <clears throat> as you read through and study the New Testament. And the pattern that you're going to see in the New Testament is that oftentimes the Holy Spirit comes and then the Word of God is spoken with great clarity and boldness. The Word of God comes and then the, uh, sorry, the Holy Spirit comes and then the Word of God is spoken with great truth, with great clarity, and with great boldness. That the Holy Spirit now came to Elizabeth, and the next words that are going to come out of her mouth, are going to, her mouth is going to be spoken with great clarity, with great truth, and with great boldness. That this next statement is as much a declaration of the triune God through the third person of the Trinity as it is Elizabeth's words. Look at verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Look at Elizabeth as she greets Mary. They're still, it appears, at the doorway. They haven't even been invited in to sit down. And this interaction's happening right there as Mary shows up at her doorstep. And she exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Scripture says that she exclaimed, How? Loudly, in a loud cry. If you look at the Greek word for loud here, it means megas. Megas is the, obviously the word where we get mega, right? This is not a small cry. It's not a medium cry. It's not a large cry. It's a mega cry that Elizabeth is now in the presence of her Savior. And she cries out, to the mother of her Savior. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Again, I just uh, speculation, but I, I, I don't know why this was uh, fun, funny, fun to me to think about where Zechariah was in this dialogue. <laughs> and so I can imagine Mary and Elizabeth at the front door, and he hears his wife yelling, what? You know, he just kind of saunders in there and writes on a notepad, what's going on in here? Like, why are, you, why are you yelling? Because it was a loud cry. It was something that could be heard in the next room. It could be potentially heard next door that there was this exuberant joy that was coming out of Elizabeth. And she said two things. She gave two blessings to Mary, to, to Mary and it was, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And we're going to see in this passage that Mary has a place of great honor. 
that Mary has a place of great value. We won't see that Mary was perfect. We won't see that Mary is worthy of worship. She's worthy of a model that we should follow. She's not in the place of God that we should worship, but a place of esteem and value. And then with great humility, Elizabeth now asks the question in verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What humility is demonstrated by Elizabeth right here? Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should be standing in my doorway? You would think, you might think, that here comes her cousin Mary, and Elizabeth has been sitting on this news. It's not like they had Facebook where everybody in the family knew immediately that Elizabeth was pregnant. She'd been sitting on this news now for six months. Mary now shows up at her door. If you were in Elizabeth's situation, how might you respond? Mary, Mary, come here. I've got some news for you. You won't believe this, even though an angel told her. You won't believe this, Mary, but Zechariah and I are pregnant. This is fascinating. Mary, let me tell you what, the, what God has done. Mary, let me tell you the answers to prayer. And that's not the posture of Mary's heart, um, uh, Elizabeth's heart at all. You're going to see Elizabeth respond with humility. Because from the time of his conception, John the Baptist was always pointing the way to Jesus. Taking no glory for himself, taking no honor for himself, but pointing the way to Jesus, deflecting all glory from coming on him and making it go on Jesus alone. Even in this passage, as Elizabeth makes Mary the focus and not herself. Because it wasn't the visit from Mary, but it was the presence of Jesus that stunned her. And she cries out, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord. The mother of my Lord should come to me. This word Lord means a person exercising absolute ownership rights. Why is it that the mother of my Lord is here to see me? How could it be that right here Elizabeth is declaring the divinity of Jesus Christ? That this is God in the flesh that this is the triune God that exists, Mary, in your womb. Because in this little house, in this little hill country of Judah, we're seeing the Old Testament prophecies be fulfilled. And this is fascinating because 700 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied that the Savior will come, even so explicitly that he will be born to a virgin. 400 years earlier in Malachi, Malachi prophecies that there will be one who prepares the way of the Lord. For 700 years, for 400 years, the Jewish people had been waiting this long await, waiting for the Savior, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for it to be revealed. And here in this story that we get to look at, it's all coming true. It's all coming to fruition. Many people think that Peter was the first to declare the lordship of Christ, but they're in fact mistaken because Elizabeth was. And it happens right here in your passage. This is the incarnation in living color. 
This is what John declared in his gospel in 1.14 that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This same Lord that Elizabeth declares is the same Lord that Paul preached in Philippians when he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. This is the Lord. Have we bowed the knee and declared him Lord of our lives? And now, Jesus, and now Elizabeth gives Mary further proof as we go on into verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here you go. It was a, a narrative a minute ago, and now uh, Elizabeth is telling Mary what happened. Mary, when, when I heard your voice, when you came to my door, this baby leaped for joy. And it's fascinating to look at this word leaped because there's only three times in your Bible where this word is used. Two of them are right here in this passage in verse 41 and 44. And only one other time is this word leaped used, and it's used in Luke 6, 22 and 23. In the context of Jesus' teaching, he says this, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then he says this, even though those things are happening, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Now, let me, let me explain to you what I just said. That at the incarnation, at the very beginning, the baby is leaping for joy. That was the first advent. And in the second advent, the one that we now look forward to when Jesus comes back and takes us home to be with him. And as scripture says, we are rewarded. There will be rewards for us in heaven. And, and what Jesus says is, in that day your reward is great in heaven, therefore leap with joy. So at the very beginning of the first advent, there was leaping for joy. And at the very end of the second advent, there's going to be leaping for joy. Is that not incredible? That joy here means exultation, exuberant joy, ecstatic delight, exhilaration. Church, when is the last time that you've experienced that kind of joy? No, USC fans, you can't say last night. Okay, when is the last time that you've experienced that kind of joy where it's exultation, it's exuberant joy, it's ecstatic delight, it's exhilaration that this describes the baby John the Baptist in the presence of Jesus the Lord. That we often sing, as we did this morning, in fact, joy to the world around the Christmas season, right? Joy to the world. We often sing it around Jesus' birth, but the chorus began at Jesus' conception. Joy to the Lord, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Second verse goes like this, and it's going to resound with joy. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. You know what we did this morning when we sang that song? We repeated the sounding joy that began in Elizabeth's womb. And we got to repeat it this morning, 
and we're going to repeat it all of these weeks leading up to Jesus' birth, and we're going to repeat it after that, and we're going to repeat it after that, and we're going to obey Paul that says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. The exuberant, exhilarating joy of the Lord is what we get to repeat. The angels are going to repeat this to the shepherds in a more familiar Christmas passage in Luke 2. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. You know the passage. Shepherds, don't fear because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced the joy of the Lord. Maybe that's a new concept for you to think that God gives us great joy when we consider his works and his promises. And this narrative invites us into experiencing that kind of joy. Jesus is the good news, bringing great joy for all people. And then Elizabeth pronounces her final blessing on Mary, uh, on Mary as we look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Here is the testimony of Mary's faith. That Mary believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord through the angel. And her response to the angel that delivered this news, as we look back to verse 38, which it said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That that was the posture of Mary's heart. That may it be according to your word that I am your servant. And I will go forth with faith and with obedience and with joy. Because this is the promise of the Lord. And church, let me ask you, what promises of the Lord do you have a hard time believing? If you're anything like me, you can name a few. Will God really provide for my needs? He says he will. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Is it hard for me perhaps to believe in his strength when I'm weary, when I'm tired, when I'm burdened and I can't imagine what it's going to be like to get to the end of this day, much less wake up and do it all again tomorrow? And the promise is I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is it an issue of God's sovereignty that why is he constructing my world the way that it is right now and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't add up and how could that circumstance be true in my life and I don't understand what God's doing? And the promise is God works all things together for good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around the promises of God. Is it his forgiveness? Steve, you don't understand what I've done in my life. You don't understand how I've rebelled against the Lord. You don't understand the deep, dark secrets in my heart. And you're saying Jesus forgives me? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That Mary believed in the promises of God. Knowing that much uncertainty lay ahead, Mary believed. Knowing that she would be a social outcast, Mary believed, knowing that her fiancé could leave her for good reason. At the announcement of this news, Mary believed, knowing that she would be severely misunderstood in her societal context, Mary believed. She believed in the promises of the Lord. And as we studied a while back in 2 Corinthians 1, 
Paul said this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so we say what? According to this verse, we say amen. You know what amen means? I agree. Amen? Amen. All the promises are yes in Christ. And through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God promised it. I say amen. I agree. May it be done as you said. It doesn't have to do with how I feel. God, you can't really forgive me because I don't feel forgiven. I say, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins. But God, I can't imagine you're going to provide for me. Have you even seen my bank account? But I will give you all things according to his glorious riches in Christ. And we say, that's your promise. My response is amen. I agree. And that was Mary's response. But that's not always our response, is it? And church, when that's not our response, and we all have a hard time at times responding to the promises of God that are yes in Christ, and sometimes we go, I just, I'm having a hard time believing that. And in those moments when we're struggling, may we remember Mark 9, 24. A man brought his son to Jesus who was, had an unclean spirit within him, and he says, Jesus, can you heal my son? And Jesus basically said, do you believe I can heal him? And this man in Mark 9, 24, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe you will provide for my needs, help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe you can forgive my sin, help my unbelief. God, I I believe that you're sovereign in this circumstance, even though I can't understand it, help my unbelief. In our first Sunday of Advent in this passage, before us. We see this incredible interaction between these two women of the faith, Mary and Elizabeth. And we see through their lives that God takes the ordinary and he does the extraordinary. And he does so through their faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. This morning we see the beginning of what our whole faith rests on. And that's Jesus, God became man and made his dwelling among us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so I pray for us as a church and for our individual families and even your individual person that this season of Advent would be a season where you come into the presence of Jesus and you walk away with exuberant, exhilarating, ongoing joy. Let's pray. joy to the world. Father, you are the joy of the world. And in this season, as we prepare our hearts during Advent, God, would you make this reality a reality in our heart? Father, we thank you because we know what's coming. This is the beginning of the story, but we know the end of the story that Jesus, you will die on the cross for our sins. And you will forgive us, everyone. So God, may our hearts overflow into glorious praise as we exalt you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Savior of our soul. We worship you this morning. 
And together we will now sing in exuberant worship. In Christ's name, amen.